The Sultan straightened his uniform. Then he put his ribbons across his uniform, attached his medals, and finally donned his red fets. Then he took one last look at himself in the mirror before heading out of the palace to the horse-drawn carriage that would take him to the Yildiz Mosque for the weekly Friday prayer. It was July 21, 1905, in Istanbul, the capital of the gigantic Ottoman Empire. But just as Sultan Abdul Hamid II, the supreme leader of the empire, was about to leave his quarters, he received word that one of the kingdom's foremost Islamic scholars, Mehmed Semaluddin Effendi, wanted to speak with him. The Sultan sighed. He was a man who was usually very punctual and followed strict routines. Shortly afterwards, however, it would appear that this delay would save his life. You are listening to Terror Talks, a podcast about some of the most spectacular terrorist attacks in history. In this podcast, I tell the stories of the terrorists, their victims, and the consequences for the survivors and society. About people who will sacrifice their own lives or the lives of others for a political, economic, religious, or social goal. Who was behind it, who they wanted to hit, and why. My name is Natasha Ingholm, and I'm a Danish journalist with a master's degree in Middle Eastern Studies based in Copenhagen, Denmark. Unfortunately, terror has come close to home a few times in my life. The massacre of 69 people on the small island Utøya in Norway happened half an hour's drive from where some of my close family lives. A good friend was only a meter away from one of the suicide bombers under London Underground in 2005. He miraculously escaped with two burst eardrums. And finally, I worked in Afghanistan some time ago, where a major terrorist attack on a local cafe claimed the lives of 21 people. Among them was the owner, who had served me cake on my birthday the year before. Fortunately, I have never been in the middle of a terrorist attack myself. However, these experiences have awakened my curiosity, fascination, and not least, a fear that most people probably know about, that it will happen to me someday, that it comes close. Before you start listening, I must warn you that the podcast contains descriptions and details that can be violent and unsuitable for especially small children and people affected by hearing about murder and violence. Today's episode is about a historic terrorist attack in the form of a failed assassination attempt on Sultan Abdul Hamid II by the Armenian Revolutionary Federation, abbreviated ARF, at the Yildiz Mosque on July 21, 1905, in the Ottoman capital Istanbul. However, the attack claimed the lives of many innocent people and injured many others. It was described by the Times newspaper as one of the biggest and most sensational political conspiracies of modern times. But first, as often before, I have to give some background on the events and actors who play a central role in the story. Today I am talking about an attack over 120 years old, therefore we must go even further back to find the story's roots. One of the leading roles in today's story is by the Armenian people. 
The country and state of Armenia as we know it today is a small country about the size of Belgium, located in the Caucasus region on the border between Europe and Asia. It borders Turkey to the west, Georgia to the north, Azerbaijan to the east and Iran to the south. About 3 million people live in Armenia today and most of the inhabitants profess an orthodox Christian religion. Like many other countries from about 1453 to 1918, Armenia was part of the vast Ottoman Empire, which controlled large parts of Southeast Europe, West Asia and North Africa. The Ottoman Empire was founded by the Turkoman tribal leader Osman, who also gave his name to the empire in the late 13th century. It took its geographical starting point in Sugud, which today corresponds to the Bilicic province in northwestern Anatolia in Turkey. From 1459 onwards, the kingdom had its capital in Constantinople, which we know today as Istanbul, where the supreme leader also resided. On one hand, and especially in its heyday until the 17th century, the Ottoman Empire was an empire where culture and science flourished, and Christians, Jews and Muslims worked side by side at the Sultan's court. The Ottomans were Muslims, and the Ottoman Sultan was the political and religious head of the Muslims in the empire. However, far from all the kingdom's inhabitants were Muslims, and mainly Christians lived in the empire's western and northern outer regions. The conditions for the various religious groups were organized so that each religious group had the status of an independent quote-unquote nation. Each nation had to act obediently and loyally to the sultan and pay taxes to him. On the other hand, unlike the kingdom's Muslims, they were exempt from military service. They had extensive freedom to organize the group's internal affairs, such as rules for marriage and divorce. Thus, the Ottomans did not forcibly convert the subjects in their conquered areas, as seen with the Christian crusaders in the Middle Ages. For that reason, some Christians in the conquered areas of Europe chose to convert to Islam, while others did so out of gratitude to the new rulers, who treated them better than the previous rulers in the area. In 1683, the Ottomans' power and the empire's geographical extent peaked when the Sultan's army attempted to capture Vienna in Austria. The conquest attempt failed and the empire slowly began to fall apart. Armenians have preserved their culture, history and language throughout time, largely thanks to their distinct religious identity among the neighboring Turks and Kurds. Like the Greek Orthodox and Jewish minorities of the Ottoman Empire, they constituted a distinct minority headed by the Armenian Patriarch of Constantinople. Armenians played an important role in Ottoman industry and commerce, and Armenian communities existed in virtually all of the empire's major cities. But the Armenians would unfortunately also become part of the so-called Eastern Question, which can be translated into something like the unresolved problem about the East. The issue was generally about the diplomatic and political problems that arose when the Ottoman Empire fell apart in the 18th century. 
The position of educated and privileged Christians in the Ottoman Empire improved in the 17th and 18th centuries. The Ottomans increasingly recognized the lack of skills that the larger Ottoman population lacked and began feeling increasingly inferior to the European powers. The Armenian minority in the Ottoman Empire mainly remained passive during these years, earning them the nickname the Loyal Nation. However, the rising nationalism among the various ethnic and religious minorities of the Ottoman Empire was fueled in the late 1820s, when the Greeks revolted, leading to the Greek War of Independence. It inspired other population groups in the empire, including the Armenians, who were frustrated with the conditions and wanted independence. That led to problems with the ruling elite and the sultan, and between 1889 and 1904, a series of bloody and brutal confrontations occurred between the Armenian Freedom Movement and the Ottoman Supremacy. Tired of being treated as second-class citizens, the Armenians pushed through the 1860s and 1970s for an end to injustices such as taxation, corruption and the rejection of Christians as witnesses in court cases. These demands were largely ignored by the regime in Istanbul. Sultan Abdul Hamid II believed that the discontent was being incited by foreign powers, by implication European powers, so that Europe could get at our most vital places and tear out our very guts. The Turkish historian Osman Nuri, who wrote a biography on the Sultan, noted, the mere mention of the word reform irritated him, inciting his criminal instincts. When the Sultan heard of a visit by the Armenian delegation to Berlin in 1878, he bitterly remarked, Such great impudence, such great treachery toward religion and state. May they be cursed upon by God. Although he admitted that some of their complaints were well-founded, he compared the Armenians with hired female mourners, plewers, who simulate a pain which they do not feel. They are an effeminate and cowardly people who hide behind the clothes of the great powers and raise an outcry for the smallest of causes. The Sultan's lack of responsiveness caused nationalism to spread among the Armenians of Anatolia, who demanded equal rights and independence. The Sultan brutally responded. One of his responses was the Hamidian massacres, also called the Armenian massacres, in the 1890s. The massacres were named after the Sultan himself, who, to maintain power of the ailing Ottoman Empire, reintroduced pan-Islamism as state ideology, that is, the desire to create an independent Muslim entity, regardless of ethnicity. Although the massacres hit several Christian groups, they were primarily aimed at the rebel Armenians. The massacres began around 1894 and increased in scale over the next two years before starting to subside in 1897, following international condemnation of Sultan Abdul Hamid. 
The Ottomans did not differentiate between victims based on age or gender, resulting in a brutal slaughter of people of all ages. One of the worst massacres took place in the city of Yufa, in the southeast of what is now Turkey, which had a sizable Armenian minority. Here, Ottoman troops burned down the Armenian cathedral, where 3,000 civilian Armenians had sought refuge and shot at everyone who tried to escape. Abdul Hamid's private secretary later wrote in his memoirs that the sultan had decided to employ a strict policy of terror against the Armenians and refused to discuss or negotiate with them. In 1897, the sultan declared that the unresolved problem of the East had been resolved and closed Armenian associations and political movements. Many Armenian rebels had either been killed or had fled to Russia. Although it is impossible to estimate precisely how many Armenians were killed during these massacres, historians estimate the number to be between 80,000 and 300,000 people. A German priest named Johannes Lepsius carefully collected data on the destruction. According to his calculations, 88,243 Armenians had died, 546,000 lived in poverty, 2,493 villages had been destroyed, 646 villages had been forcibly converted to Islam, and 645 churches and monasteries had been destroyed, half of which had been converted into mosques. He also estimated that around 100,000 Armenians subsequently died of famine and disease. I have no wish to ever excuse or explain away a terrorist attack. However, in this context, I still have to point out that we can discuss whether it was a regular civil war between two unequal parties. Now, you as a listener at least have the historical background for the events that I will tell you about shortly, which led to the terrorist attack and the assassination attempt on Sultan Abdul Hamid II. In any case, the historical circumstances underline the problem of the whole concept of terrorism, how complex it can be, and how the definition of terror depends on which side of history and events you stand on. Five years before the massacres of the Armenians by the Ottomans began, in 1890, a group of Armenians had formed the rebel group, the Armenian Revolutionary Federation, abbreviated ARF. It was based on nationalist values and socialist ideology and was an outgrowth of various Armenian political groups, which originated primarily from the Russian Empire. Their stated goal was political and economic freedom for the Armenian minority in the Ottoman Empire through armed rebellion. During the 1890s, the ARF tried to unite the various small rebel groups in the Ottoman Empire who advocated reform. They also tried to defend Armenian villages against the massacres and lawlessness that ravaged them. The party aimed to form a society based on democratic principles, such as freedom of assembly, speech and religion. They tried to educate the Armenian population to win their support and encourage the younger generation to join their revolutionary activities. 
After the massacres, members of the Armenian Revolutionary Federation, led by the founder Christopor Makhelian, began planning a terrorist attack and assassination of Sultan Abdul Hamid II in the early 90s because they wanted revenge. In Sofia, the capital of Bulgaria, they planned the attack and for several weeks the terrorists observed the Sultan's daily routines. Sultan Abdul Hamid prayed every Friday at the Yildiz Mosque. He usually arrived and left at the same time each Friday, making his movement patterns predictable almost to the minute and second. The ARF manufactured the explosives at the improvised bomb production factory in the village of Saplila, near the Bulgarian city of Kyustendil. Along the way, Christopor Mikhailian and his friend Ramshabu died in an explosion accident. Despite this accident, the plans continued. On the day of the attack, on July 21, 1905, One of the ARF's members drove Sarah in a horse-drawn carriage in front of the mosque. The Yildiz Mosque, whose full name was the Hamidi Yildiz Mosque, was commissioned by the Sultan himself and finished in 1886. It was and is an Ottoman royal mosque located in the Yildiz neighborhood in the Besiktas district of Istanbul, which was a treasured area for the royal family in the Ottoman Empire. The mosque was a large rectangular building with several smaller square annexes, a single round annexe with a domed roof and a minaret from which the imam called to prayer. In front of the mosque was a large square framed by an iron fence where the worshippers could go up to the mosque on foot or in a horse-drawn carriage. The worshippers could enter through several doors in either the main building or up a small staircase in the side building on the left side of the mosque. The terrorist Sareh had a bomb with him in his wagon, made of 80 kilos of explosives, equivalent to the weight of an adult male goat, loaded with 20 kilos of iron pieces, which were supposed to act as grapnel. The bomb was timed with a clock. The terrorist preparatory work had shown that it took Sultan Abdul Hamid precisely one minute and 42 seconds from the time he left the horse-drawn carriage to reach the bottom step of the mosque. Saray looked at the clock. Now it was time for the sultan's arrival. The clock counted down. He didn't come. Beads of sweat rolled from Saray's forehead down on his cheek. Then Sultan Abdul Hamid's horse-drawn carriage finally arrived but it was too late for Saray to carry out the original plan by then. He threw the bomb at the sultan, but it went off too far from its target to harm him. The sultan was able to leave the square in front of the mosque, frightened but unharmed, leaving behind an inferno of dead bodies and mutilated screaming people. 26 members of the sultan's court lost their lives in the attack and 58 civilians who happened to be present were injured. A subsequent investigation by the Ottoman authorities foiled other plots. Although this attack failed in 1908, the ARF collaborated with the reform movement, the Young Turks, to dispose the Sultan. Sultan Abdul Hamid II capitulated on April 24th of that year and many Armenians were optimistic about the prospects of independence. 
However, the Young Turks were divided between wings that wanted decentralization of power and equal rights for all religious and ethnic groups, and a national wing that wanted central control of the kingdom and Turkish dominance. At the very least, many Armenians believed that they were now considered equal citizens. Unfortunately, in the end, it was the nationalists who won power. The Armenians were scapegoated and subjected to a genocide that caused the lives of 1.5 million people, or 75% of all Armenians in the Ottoman Empire at that time. Some listeners may ask, why is it now so important to look back on these historical attacks, which seem so far from us both geographically and temporarily? If we are to learn more about terror, it is crucial that we also look back in history. Not only because modern terrorism often has roots in a long history, but also because the concept of terrorism is not a new quote-unquote invention. Depending on how broadly we define the term terrorism, the first attacks date back several thousand years, and the first time the modern term terror was used was during the French Revolution at the end of the 18th century. Today many people believe that terror is an Islamic invention, and it is also true that the vast majority of terrorist attacks in recent years have been committed by Islamists. It is also worth noting that these attacks committed in the name of Islam are carried out in countries that either have Islam as their official religion or where the vast majority of inhabitants are Muslims, and that the victims are, therefore, also in the vast majority of cases, victims of a war that uses religion as an ideology. But if we really want to learn more about terrorism and terrorists, and what can lead to the radicalization of people, then history is always a good place to start. Here we can draw parallels and find differences in motives and methods, and thus become wiser. Except for lone wolf attacks, terrorism often tells us much about nations, states, people and societies throughout history. About injustices, oppression, revenge motives, foundations and hotbeds of ideologies, and how society looked at a given time in history. I know I keep repeating that terror can never be excused, and I will always stick to that. But that being said, terror very rarely comes out of nowhere. I have yet to research an episode where I have not at least found explanations for the terrorist motives, although I certainly do not sympathize with their actions. To round off today's story, Sultan Abdul Hamid II, who survived the terrorist attack in front of the Yildiz Mosque, died a natural death on February 11, 1918, and was given a statesman's funeral. The ARF and the other Armenians in Turkey had their wish for an independent state fulfilled for a very short time, from 1918 to 1920. They were then incorporated into the Soviet Union and gained independence in 1990. And so the story's moral once again is that terror does not pay. You have listened to Terror Talks, a podcast about terror and radicalization. This episode was written, produced and narrated by me, Natasha Ingholm, while John Lobb voiced the men in the story. Also a big thank you to consultant and journalist Lars Wilber, 
who contributed with sparing and wise thoughts. You will find the episode sources in the show notes where you listen to your podcast. I would also greatly appreciate if you could give the podcast a positive review and tell friends and family who might be interested in listening along. Listen to the next episode where I talk about an attack that was not orchestrated by a terror group, but by a leader of an entire country. Also feel free to go in and follow Terror Talk social media on Instagram and Facebook, where you can see pictures from today's story.